From the very moment that the word of the Lord spoke creation into existence, Christ was anticipated. This sermon examines the Old Testament anticipation of the Incarnation as it is seen in types, figures, shadows, and symbolism, encouraging and preparing God's people for the coming of the King. Roll covenant reading coming from Genesis, Genesis and chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us. By inspiration of God, Moses writes, In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Luke, writing to us in Luke in chapter 24, the first 27 verses, speaking of the vindication of the Son of Man before men, his victory over death, and the fulfillment of the prophecies as he walked on the road to Emmaus. Luke the physician writes this, By the same spirit, he says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, He said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed wondering in himself at that which was to come to pass. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, Answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel 
And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. When they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with him, and certain of them which were with us, went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now notice verse 27 of Luke, and beginning at Moses, from the very beginning, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them, these men on the road to Emmaus, in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now to begin at Moses was to begin at the very beginning of the Pentateuch. It was to begin at Genesis chapter 1. Jesus was going to open the scriptures. He was going to expound the word of God to reveal to these people all that was anticipated of him in the beginning. Jesus reveals to these men on the road to Emmaus exactly what the totality of the scriptures are in one verse. All of these things in the Old Testament are about me. The Word of God written in its declarative and propositional fashion and revealed in the writings of the patriarchs and the prophets testify of the Word made flesh, the anticipated Christ of God. That's what the Old Testament is all about. Simply put, that is what the whole, the two-thirds of the whole of the canon is about. It's about the Christ, anticipating him in types and figures and shadows and symbolism. Jesus is declaring that he alone has and is given preeminence in the entirety of the holy canon of the Old Testament. So he's actually telling these men and revealing to their hearts that the totality of the Bible is simply about him. And he begins at Moses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and following. The revelation of the totality of Scripture is Christ-centristic, Christocentric. It is about Christ alone. Jesus pointedly tells the unbelieving Pharisees in John chapter 5 that Moses clearly spoke of him, anticipating him, in his patriarchal writings, in the Pentateuch in particular, which launched the whole of the sacred text. Notice what he says in John chapter 5, verse 46. He says this to the Pharisees. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Moses was writing all about the Christ of God, anticipating all about the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 56, he goes on to tell them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. He saw it and was glad. In other words, even Abraham saw the Christ, the anticipated Christ that Moses was writing about. And when they protested, as all unbelievers do, 
Jesus stated clearly that he was the very God of Genesis chapter 1, the creator, lawgiver, judge, and king. Notice John eight fifty seven. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. The great I am that Moses spoke about at the foot of Mount Sinai, Jesus is claiming to be him. A.M. Hodgkins explains it this way. He says, With regard to our Lord's reference to the book of Moses, the testimony is emphatic. It was no mere passing reference to them. The whole force of the argument again and again lies in the fact that he regarded Moses not as a mere title, but by which certain books were known, but as personally the actor in the history which they recorded and the author of the legislation which they contain. Therefore, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament scripture is crafted in such a way as to be a divine anticipation of the coming Messiah who would deliver his people from their sin in a sin-cursed world at his initial advent. The time that he came as a babe in the manger is anticipated in the whole of the Old Testament canon. Hodgkin again explains it this way. He says, looking forward into the future from the earliest ages, God's servants saw one capital O, one, who was to come. And as the time approached, this vision grew so clear that it would be almost possible for us to describe Christ's life on earth from the Old Testament scripture, of which he himself said, they testify of me. In other words, the scriptures were being developed so much that it would be finally possible if you put it all together from the beginning of Genesis until the end of the Old Testament, that it would be possible almost possible, he says, for us to describe Christ's life on earth from that testimony. He continues, There was one central figure in Israel's hope. The work of the world's redemption was to be accomplished by one man, the promised Messiah. It is he who was to bruise the serpent's head according to Genesis 3.15. He was to be descended from Abraham and from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah looked forward and saw first a great light shining upon the people that walked in darkness in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. And as he gazed, he saw that a child was to be born, a son was to be given, and with growing amazement there dawned upon him these names as describing the nature of the child, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. There dawned upon Isaiah the consciousness that this promised one was none other than God, manifest in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And now all the prophets, one by one, fill in the picture, each adding a fresh, vivid touch. The prophet Micah sees the little town where Jesus was to be born and tells us it is Bethlehem. Isaiah sees the adoration of the Magi. Jeremiah pictures the death of the innocents and Hosea foreshadows the flight into Egypt. Isaiah again portrays his meekness and gentleness and the wisdom and knowledge which Jesus manifested all out, all throughout his life from the time of his talking to the doctors in the temple. Again, when he cleansed the temple, the words of the psalmist came at once to the memory of the disciples where it says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Isaiah pictured him preaching good tidings to the meek, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives and giving the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The prophets foresaw 
something of the character and extent of the Savior's work. The light that was to shine forth from Zion was to be for all the world. Jew and Gentile alike were to be blessed. The Spirit of God was to be poured out upon all flesh and all the ends of the earth were to see the salvation of God. End quote. That is what the Old Testament is all about. And the Old Testament was the anticipation of that incredible event, the coming of the Son of God. It anticipated His person, His work, His victory, His conquest over sin, death, and the world, His union with His children, how He would be the vine, and we would be the branches, that He would be the cornerstone, and we would be the building, that He would be the head, and we would be the body. The bestowal upon them also of all of His benefits, and the fulfillment of his covenant dominion inheritance. All of this contained in the Old Testament. So Jesus begins with Genesis to declare himself, beginning at Moses, to declare himself to the world and to the precise moment of creation he points back to. Dr. Joseph Moorcraft observes this. He says, Genesis, along with the rest of the Bible, is the self-revelation of the living God. Commentator S.G. DeGraff observes, The mediator was operative throughout the Old Testament era. His work did not begin at the start of the New Testament. He already penetrated the Old Testament history, moving among the people in shadows in order to reveal himself. Everything is full of him. How wonderfully the scriptures open themselves up to us when we focus on the mediator. End quote. Now, the word Genesis means origin. It is the declaration of the beginnings, of the world's beginnings, and all that it contains. And because it is the declaration of the origin of all things, it is the book which defines all things. God, at this point, is defining all things. He's saying that the day, the night, this is how I look at it. The day is good, the light is good. The creation is good. He's defining things. Henry Morris explains it this way. He says, The book of Genesis gives vital information containing the origin of all things and therefore the meaning of all things which would otherwise be forever inaccessible to man. God defines truth. God defines what is good and God defines what is evil. So if God defines evil as evil, men must understand that no matter how they redefine evil, evil remains evil according to God's word. Genesis begins with the origin of the universe as it is contained within the confines of time. It details the origin of time, space, and matter within a a detailed, organized system and complexity. It speaks of the origin of light, of darkness, plant life, animal life, human life, marriage, evil, language, government, that which is good, culture, nations, the origin of religion, and the origin of the chosen people. It contains everything. As Morris observes, the book of Genesis is the foundation of all true history. But as we shall see, the book of Genesis does not only declare the origin of things, But more importantly, it declares the originator of all things, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Genesis account is the testimony of a personal creator who creates and then who orchestrates all history, all historical events, according to his perfect 
righteous decree by his providential action in time, space, and history. The first thing God does is create time. And within the confines of time, that is where God does his work. And this is what Paul was explaining to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before the beginning one, he is before the first one, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. John is careful to yoke Genesis chapter 1 with his opening remarks of his gospel account in order for us to recognize that we need to be pointed back to the point of origin. In the beginning, notice the first, in the beginning, at the point of originating all things, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, the Logos. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's pointing us back. John adds to this miraculous event by defining the Genesis God who created the universe. In verse 14, notice what he says. And the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John accomplished two things in these verses. First, by pointing back to Genesis, he sets forth the infinite distinction between the creature and the creator, between the creator and the creature. There is a distinction between that which is created and that one who created it. Moorcraft explains it this way. Notice what he says. In the very first words of the Bible, a clear distinction is made between God the Creator and God's creation, the Creator-Creature distinction, which distinction must never be forgotten nor laid aside for even a moment. In other words, we are not God. Or to put it in a more modern term, the state is not God. Man is not God. Only God is God. And only Jesus Christ can be both God and man. Author Richard Pratt Jr. in his book, Every Thought Captive, he comments and he says this. This distinction between the independent God, the creator, and the dependent creator, creature, is one of the fundamental differences between Christians and non-Christians. That creation, creature. Christians strive to see everything in light of creation's dependence upon God, while the non-Christian tries to deny creation's dependence. Every person who is not trusted in Christ for salvation fails to account for the creator-creature distinction and somehow puts God and his creation in mutual dependence on each other and ascribes to creation a degree of independence. Number two, secondly, the second reality John declared is the intimacy, yes, there's that creator-creature distinction, but then John speaks about the intimacy between God, the creator, and his people, the creature, 
even in the face of this creator-creature distinction. And that's why he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And this is the clear testimony of the love of God for the people of his election. Both the Hebrew writer and the apostle explain this intimacy while maintaining, notice how they're explaining that intimacy. We're in union with Christ. We have communion through the mediator. There's that great intimacy. And yet there's that great distinction. Notice how both the Hebrew writer and the apostle explain this intimacy while maintaining that creator-creature distinction. Notice when he uses the phrase, yet without sin in Hebrews 4, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God in Philippians 2. Notice, Hebrews 4.15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like as we are yet without sin. So he's tempted like us, yet distinct from us. Paul says this to the church at Philippi, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, the Creator, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we have that creature-creator distinction, yet the intimacy is maintained. This distinction was being made over and over and over throughout Christ's ministry. Notice John 8, 23, 24, 28, and 58. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. A distinction. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. A distinction. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And then John 8, 58, Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So it seems as if John, in particular, was given a clearer, more precise grasp on the the correlation between the, the originator of all things in the book of Genesis and the culmination of all things in the book of Revelation. In other words, you have the origin in Genesis and the culmination in Revelation. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. Notice, for example, note the following comparisons between the original world that once was and the final world that would come about through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So between the origin of all things in the book of Genesis and the culmination of all things in the book of Revelation. Notice the distinctions. Genesis 1-4, we have a division of light and darkness. In Revelation 21, there's no night there. In Genesis 1-10, a division of land and sea. In Revelation 21-1, no more sea. In Genesis 1-16, the sun and the moon were ruling. In Revelation 21-23, there was no need of the sun nor the moon. In Genesis 2-8 and 9, man was preparing a garden. In Revelation 21, man is preparing a city. In Genesis 2, 10, the river was flowing out of Eden. In Revelation 22, 1, the river was flowing from God's throne. In Revelation 2, 12, gold was in the land. In Revelation 21, gold is in the city. In Genesis 2, 9, the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation 22, 2, the tree of life was throughout the city. 
Genesis 3.8, God was walking in the garden. Revelation 21.3, God is dwelling with his people. In Genesis 3.17 and 18, the ground is cursed, thorns and thistles arise. In Revelation 22.3, no more curse. In Genesis 3.17, man's daily sorrow, but in Revelation 21.4, there was no more sorrow. In Genesis 3.19, man was working by the sweat of his brow, but in Revelation 21.4, all of his tears are wiped away. In Genesis 3.19, man was returning to the dust, but in Revelation 21.4, there was no more death. In Genesis 6.5, evil was continuous. In Revelation 21.27, there was nothing left that would defile. In Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent, Satan, was opposing. But in Revelation 20, Satan is banished. In Genesis 3.24, man is kept from the tree of life. But in Revelation 22.14, man's access to the tree of life is continuous. In Genesis 3.23, man is banished from the garden. But in Revelation 22, he's free to enter into the city. And finally, in Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer is promised. In Revelation 5.9 and 10, the redemption is accomplished. Each of these transitions from the original world to the culmination of the new world find their place in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his advent. Everything dovetails into the advent. The all of the Old Testament dovetails and finds its completion in Christ himself, in that babe that lies in the manger who is the king of the universe. Thus Genesis is the anticipation of the covenant promise culminating in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider how the book of origins begin. Notice, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The beginning of the universe starts out with the creation of time by God who himself is the beginning one. The Hebrew word for beginning is also translated as first. They're almost interchangeable. And it's here where God identifies himself as the beginning one who is both the first and the last the one who originates and the one who culminates. Isaiah uses the very same Hebrew word as in Genesis 1.1 to identify God. Notice Isaiah 44.6 and Isaiah 48.12. Thus saith Yahweh the King of Israel and his Redeemer Yahweh Sabaoth the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning one and I am the culminating one. And beside me there is no God. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the beginning one, and I am the last. I am the first and the last. I am the originator, and I am the culminator. John identifies the Lord Jesus as the God of this Old Testament declaration in the book of Revelation as the Arche, the first one. Arche means the first one, the initiating one, the first principle of all things, the God of first causes, in other words, who is the one who commences all things from nothing. And that's what God did in Genesis when he says, let there be light. In the beginning God created and he brought light into the darkness of the world. The translators, however, interchanged those words. They, and they very rightly can be interchanged. The first and the beginning and those can be interchanged because they're basically the same Greek word. Notice in Revelation 1.17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Or, I am the arche. I am the initiator. I am the beginning one. I am the creator. Revelation 8, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending. 
saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. In Revelation 3.14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Revelation 21.6 and 22.13 And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Notice, the originator and the one who culminates, the culminator. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I am Alpha and Omega, Revelation 22.13, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's making a point. He's pointing back to the beginning of the created order. And so the Arche, the first principle, the first cause of all things, the originator of all things, the first and the beginning one of all things is Elohim, the beginning one, the first one. Dr. Moorcraft again weighs in. He says, The eternal God who created the universe is called Elohim. This name of God reveals God as the Almighty God, the Omnipotent God, the Strong and Mighty One. Elohim is a plural noun, denoting not only fullness of power, but plurality within the Godhead. That is to be understood as the Trinity. See, Elohim is a plural word. The creator of the universe is not an impersonal force or power that pervades everything. He is a living person who can speak, plan, rest, and ask questions. He made man in his image to have fellowship with him. Elohim is the infinite personal God. Now the use of the term or the title Elohim rather than, as God sometimes uses, the title Adonai or his, his name Yahweh is very significant in another way. Whenever God identifies himself as Yahweh, Messiah, or Savior, he is usually speaking to his people in a covenantal fashion. But when he specifically refers to himself as Elohim, he's usually addressing the entire global order. So by the title name Elohim, God is speaking to men from his Trinitarian being. He is speaking to men as the one and the many. He speaks to men in a general fashion. He speaks to the universe as the triune God in order to show them that he alone is God, three in one, that he is the Father, that he is the Son, and that he is the Holy Spirit, and that there is this creator-creature distinction. That's what the word Elohim signifies. And we see this in Psalm 46, verse 10. Notice, Be still and know that I am Elohim, God. You see, we we have a problem with our, our translations. Because our translation says, And know that I am God. So you don't know whether it's Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh. You You're really not sure. But the word here in the Hebrew is Elohim. I will be exalted. Now notice, remember, Elohim is referring in a global sense to everyone. I will be exalted among the heathen, among the nations. The word heathen is literally the word nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Notice, he's speaking of himself as the triune God who is going to be exalted universally in the earth. In Psalm 50, he rebukes the apostates by reminding them of the creator-creature distinction 
that he is the almighty creator God, the Elohim of Genesis chapter 1. Notice Psalm 50 verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am Elohim, even thy Elohim. I am God, even thy God. Ezekiel 28, 9. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am Elohim, but thou shalt be a man. In other words, man, you can't say you're God, but thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. So God sometimes uses the Hebrew word El instead of Elohim as a form of Elohim to emphasize something about his might. When El is used, when it stands alone, it is usually translated not so much as God, but as Almighty, as in the Almighty God. Notice Isaiah 43.12 I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am El, I am God. I am the Almighty God. He's not just saying he's Elohim, the triune God, but as the triune God, as Yahweh, as the Lord, as the Master, He is mighty. El. Isaiah 45.22 Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am El. I am the Almighty God. And there is none else. And Isaiah 46.9 Remember the former things of old, for I am El. I am God, the mighty God. And there is none else. I am God. And there is none like me. Notice he's emphasizing the power the infinite power of who He is. We need to get back into the mindset of who it is we serve. And when we come to the congregation, and when we walk into the sanctuary, when we see the pulpit, and the Word of God is sung, and the Word of God is is preached, and the Word of God is prayed, and we commune together, we must recognize that God is the mighty God, the almighty God. In certain instances, God uses both titles in order to emphasize even more fully exactly who men are dealing with. The triune God who is the almighty God. Genesis thirty-five eleven, And Elohim said unto him, I am El, almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee and kings shall come out of thy loins. Genesis 46.3 And he said, I am El. I am the Almighty God. The God, the Elohim, the Triune God. So you see, in this one verse, in these verses, both Almighty and Elohim are used. The God of thy fathers. Fear not to go down into Egypt for I will there make of thee a great nation. So the patriarchs and the prophets, and the priests of God, the faithful men of God, and the kings who were faithful, they understood that they were in the presence of a mighty deity, an all-encompassing, almighty deity. And that is what gave them the fear of God. And that is what is lacking in our modern Christendom today. The next phrase of Genesis 1 continues to develop the creator-creature distinction. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. doesn't say man created. He has nothing to do with it. He's not even in the picture. And he created the heaven and the earth. Then Moses tells us this, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And once again, 
we contemplate the question, why would God initially create the heaven and the earth without form and void and covered with darkness on the face of the deep? Why not just on the first day, everything's good? Certainly he could have done that. He could have created the heaven and earth without creating it first in a void amidst the darkness. Couldn't he have initially created it fully formed? Of course he could have. He's God. But he didn't. And he didn't for a reason. Because God does everything because of a reason. He has a plan. You see, without the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the deep, bringing light to the darkness the world would remain dark and in chaos. Without the light of the world, the created order would remain void of form and seeped in darkness of man's sin and rebellion. So God is making a statement, without me, the world will be in a blaze of darkness, sin and chaos. God here is making a redemptive point that without the light of the world, the world would remain in darkness, void of form and without hope. And once the church loses its light, when it fails to put it on a candlestick, we have America and the world 2021. We have the Commonwealth of the Virginians and the whole of the United States in panic, hopelessness, and chaos because we have forgotten that we are called to put our light upon a candlestick. Otherwise, the world would remain void amidst darkness. So he's making a redemptive point and so he declares that there will be light, and there will be light, which would make a clear distinction between the light and the darkness, the day and the night. And then God proclaims it to be good. Notice, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. There cannot be any kind of transference between light and darkness. Either it's light or it's dark. Either it's good or it's evil. Either it's God's way or it's not God's way. Either the scriptures tell you it's right or the scriptures tell you it's wrong man has nothing to say about it because God is the definer of all things he defines what is right so when somebody tells you with an XY chromosome that he is a woman you tell me better be careful because he might get prostate cancer when he gets older you cannot redefine what God has made certain you cannot say a man is a woman, a woman is a man. You cannot say I want to marry a same-sex individual because that's the way it is legally. Or I can kill babies in the womb. You can't say these things. These are all evil things. According to Scripture, they are condemned because God defines it. I don't define it. It's not up to me to define it. Hey, you have the right to go to hell. Go right ahead. It's not my business. But God has business with you. Because God has business with everyone because He's the Creator and we are the creatures. And we need to understand that. So God proclaims that the light is good and He divides the light from the darkness. Jesus points back to this creative event showing us that within the created order, within the creation itself, He is preeminent because He is the light of the world. And He makes a point to distinguish between the light of His truth and the darkness of man's sin and rebellion. Notice John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Which means, in the negative, if you are not following him, 
you are walking in darkness and you have the expectation, not of life, but of death. John returns to this distinction between light and darkness, describing it in spiritual terms. In 1 John 1 and 5 and following, notice what he says. This then is the message. Here it is. For all the world to hear, for all the world to for all the world to witness, here is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say, and this is it's amazing because I always I always marvel when people say that they, they, they think God's laws are too are too stringent, they're too too hard. But God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How can we say such a thing? John continues, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. So drawing from Genesis chapter 1, John makes the point in both his gospel and his letters that the physical creation reality has strong, undeniable gospel implications. But there's more. Note how between the chaotic void of darkness and the light, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The phrase face of the waters seems, I mean, we look at it literally, moved upon the face of the waters, but is there a, a redemptive idea here? Is there a, a spiritual dimension, types, figures, shadows, symbology? Well, the phrase face of the water seems to be referring to men's souls. Interesting wording, face of waters, not surface of water, but face of the waters. Throughout the scriptures, God uses water metaphorically to identify, in certain instances, mankind, usually those that are unregenerate. He sometimes uses it to depict the gospel, sometimes the judgment of God. But notice how David refers to his enemies as great waters. Second Samuel 22.17 He sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. The many waters were likened to a strong enemy. And from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. First Chronicles 14.11 So they came up to baal Pizzerim. And David smote them there. Then David said, God had broken in upon mine enemies by mine hand like the breaking forth of waters. Job 2 refers to the enemy as waters in Job 30, 14. Then came upon me as a wide breaking in of waters in the desolation they rolled themselves upon me. God promises that the enemy will not be able to destroy his people, referring to them as great waters. Psalm 32, 6 and Psalm 77, 16. Notice. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. So in Psalm 77, God tells us that the unregenerate of the world will be terrified by the face of God. The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee, they were afraid, the depths also were troubled. So there's a lot of symbology. Notice Isaiah 17 and Isaiah 8. The nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters. But God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Now therefore, Isaiah 8, 7, Behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks. 
So sometimes waters are referring to the enemies of God. John again cuts through the metaphors and gets right to the point in Revelation seventeen fifteen. He says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. See how he defines his terms. The waters, here's what the waters are. Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so when Jesus tells the woman at the well that the water that she really needs is not the natural water whereby she might thirst again, he's referring to the ideologies of sinful man and their ideas of salvation attempts at bringing order out of chaos. He says, I'm going to give you the water that you really need. You don't need that water. Only the living water will suffice. Only living water can satisfy man's spiritual need and not the waters of wicked men as Isaiah identifies. Notice Isaiah 57.20 But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Man's ideologies can only cast up water, mire and dirt. They're the water of wickedness. Jude speaks of the waters of man's rebellion as raging waves of the sea in Jude 1.11 Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Do you see the symbology here? The implication of Genesis chapter 1 then is that before there can be light upon the waters of men's souls, God the Holy Spirit must move upon it. Only then, because men are darkness. Even the Apostle Paul says, he doesn't say, you are in darkness. He says, ye are darkness. We are darkness. So it's only... After the Spirit moves on the darkness, on the face of the waters, can men turn to God. Only then, when the Spirit of God broods over the waters, can the light of the regeneration of Christ turn chaos into that which is orderly, turn that which is evil into that which is good. John tells us this in John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Moses says this, Genesis 1, 5. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now the day again is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the day star, the glorious day that the Lord hath made for his people to rejoice in it and be glad in it. We speak of the Sabbath day or the Lord's day, where we come and we worship. Well, that is symbolic of the rest that we have in the day star, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you might want to ask the question, why are the people of God to be rejoicing in the day? Is it simply because in that day he has redeemed his people? Well, of course, that's part of it. But there's more. When we speak about the day of the Lord or rejoicing in the day where God says that we are to praise God in that day, why in that day? Well, that day is the day of reckoning. It's a day of justice and judgment upon the wicked and vindication of the Lord and his people. In fact, the day referred to by Moses is defined years later by Ezekiel as the day where the scales of God's justice are finally balanced both upon the wicked and the apostate. You see, for those of you that are frustrated with what's happening in the world around us, there will be a day, God promises, that the balance will be 
leveled out. Notice what Ezekiel says, 39, 6 and following. I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. The day of justice, the day of recompense, the day of where God says, I am going to bring light out of darkness. This is the intent of Matthew chapter 10, 10.34. Think not that I am come, this is Jesus, after the incarnation in his ministry. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. The sword of the word of God. The sword of justice. The sword of equity. The sword of vindication. Part of Christ's commission was to fulfill the declaration of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 when he is set forth as king over the nation, ruling them with a rod of iron, and when he is given the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, for when he finally comes at his incarnation, as it was foretold and anticipated even as early as Genesis chapter 1, the Lord at his right hand, as the psalmist says, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. It says that he shall judge among the heathen, he shall fill the places with the dead bodies, he shall wound the heads over many, many countries. Now once that victory is finalized in time and in history, and it can only be finalized in time and in history if the church gets itself together and recognizes the severity of their calling. Because we are not only called to salvation, we are called to the Savior. And that Savior says, go, and we go. If He says, come, we come. If He says, fight, we fight. If He says, witness, we witness. Because we have been drawn to the Savior. But people don't think that way. We think, well, we've been drawn to the, to, the, to the salvation. But if you've been drawn to the salvation, then you've been drawn to the Savior, and the Savior says, go. So once that victory is finalized in time and in history, when the light is forever divided from the darkness and then vanquished once and for all, then when all things shall be subdued unto him, as the Apostle says, Then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things unto Him, so that God may be all in all. This is what was anticipated from the very beginning of time, as early as the first utterance of the Creator King, so that men might know that He alone is God, the Mighty God, the Lawgiver, the Judge, the King, who came to us, born the King of Nations, the Redeemer and Savior of the universe, to whom all men must bow, beloved of the Lord, Look unto him and be ye saved. Seek him forevermore, for he is thy God. Amen.